Mental illness is again a political talking point. The American Psychological Association says one in five children have a mental health need. Schools in Georgia are now taking steps to deal with them. The reality of it is we have to accept the issue that there are stressors that children bring to school. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how some districts are innovating programs to address the social and emotional pressures that affect the mental health of students and faculty. And Rothko and Pollock cut their start with the help from the Works Progress Administration. A Georgia Museum of Art exhibit presents the women of the WPA. Plus voice actor Amber Nash on what makes Atlanta's film community unique. I think one of the things that sets us apart is because we've always been our own smaller market that if you want to do something here, you can make it happen. Bigger is not always better with On Second Thought right after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Most people who become violent do not have a diagnosis of mental illness. In fact, research shows that people who do are more likely to be victims of crimes than perpetrators. Still, after each mass shooting, we hear contrary messages. We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. While mental illness gets caught up in rhetoric, the need to address it is absolutely real. Notably among young people, the American Psychological Association says as many as one in five children has a mental health need. Several Georgia school districts are making efforts to address those needs for students and for faculty. Here with more on these efforts is Deborah Murdoch. She's former high school principal, and she now heads the Social and Emotional Learning Initiative for Cherokee County Schools. Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being here. How does this new focus on social and emotional learning differ from the traditional mental health care? Well, it really doesn't differ at all. Um, the social-emotional framework is really a larger piece if you think about an umbrella. Um, mental health awareness really fits right under the, that. Um, social emotional learning helps students and adults manage emotions, set positive goals, understand others, have um, empathy for others, and uh, understand really what they're about as a human being. And so mental health awareness really just fits right up underneath the umbrella of well, social emotional learning. And of course, this wasn't, your initiative was not developed in a vacuum. The Georgia APEX program started with a pilot in 2015. Now, how's that distinct from your program? So the APEX program certainly is an important piece of our program. Our program looks at a totality of the the child and both well both the child and the adult so we look at five tenants and apex really fits under one of those so our tenants are really looking at trauma-informed practices helping our staff and students understand about trauma um, where their own trauma comes from and recognizing that mental health awareness and this is where the apex program is really very very important apex is a collaborative of mental health providers and uh, our governor has really sought to expand that program but mental health awareness and suicide prevention is a second tenant equity and access culture competencies we want our students to understand um, that 
all students are different. There's a diversity of people, and that they're all very important in our school system. A positive behavior framework. We want um, teachers to collaborate on positive behaviors. And then staff well-being and self-care is very important. We can't really look at our kids and their needs without focusing on our staff. It's very important that we acknowledge that our staff needs to take care of themselves, and we need to help that process along. So APEX is a very important process right underneath that mental health and awareness piece. So those five tenets expanding now in school curriculum. That's correct, yes. And APEX, you mentioned they got money from the state. An additional $8.4 million from the fiscal year started on July 1, thanks to Governor Kemp's budget. This is on top of... $4.3 $4.3 million from Governor Deal the year before that. So that's a significant outlay, more than doubling in a year. How was the case made for all this funding? Well, I think that um, there's been lots of political information out there about the importance of mental health. So that piece we're very excited about. Let's draw some attention to mental health awareness in our state. And uh, the governor... I believe, really wanted to help school districts um, find funds to provide mental health within their schools. So the $8.4 million was really designated for high schools, and he sought to put that into the APEX program. And according to some of the research, he believed that that program is successful. We're just starting to really explore our options with some of our APEX providers. At this point, I think only about 20% of schools have APEX providers in their schools, but we're looking forward to beginning conversations with our APEX providers in our district and seeing how they can really help our kids in our schools. So this is a high school, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. a Governor Deal. This is focused on high school, the APEX program. How about your program? Mm-hmm. Where is that? It is going to be a K-12 initiative. We're really looking at all those different factors from as you mentioned, the embedded curriculum pieces, but also behaviors and support from our mental health providers, our counselors, our psychologists, our social workers. And our district even kind of went um, two steps above, and we hired two additional mental health providers in this fiscal year to really support some of the initiatives that the social-emotional initiative was really going to be about. Well, let's get to the need for counseling mm-hmm. in schools. For mental health or learning, uh, social and emotional skills, we cited that number at the beginning. One in five kids could use support in this area. You were nodding. That yes. sounds right to you? Absolutely. That it's sounds right so high. It really is. And for our district of our size, we're approaching 43,000 kids in our district, you know, that's really 8,500 kids that really need support. And of those, how many are not diagnosed? And so we really want to get a grasp on the kids that need that support, but also finding the others that possibly need support and don't have it yet. Well, given your work, is there an example of a child who you worked with maybe uh, who illustrates that need? Maybe someone struggling at home or with a mental health diagnosis who benefited from counseling and this kind of support. You know, my go-to story is one of our success stories in our district. He was a student in my school when I was the high school principal at Cherokee High. He really needed every support in the planet. With a great partnership, we have a great partnership with a group called Goshen Valley Boys Ranch. Um, his home life was atrocious, the, the worst I have ever seen in, in 24 years. But he found a home at Goshen Valley, and we put lots of supports in place, counseling supports um, through the work at Goshen. He received counseling at school and at home. 
And um, what a real success story. We were really worried about that child making it. But through all the efforts of a great staff at that high school, the extra supports he received at Goshen, he was able to graduate, and I was able to hand him that diploma. And he's doing very well at this point. So that's what we're talking about, laser focus on every each and every kid in our district. Well, how can you manage that with so many kids? And so I think you've got two counselors in your program now? Well, we have two mental health providers. Mm-hmm. We have uh, 91 counselors in the district, school district-wide. So it's really going to take a totality of focus. And that's what we're saying in our district. It takes a village to raise them. So not only we're talking about the counselors and psychologists and social workers, we're talking about teacher empowerment, teacher development. But we are making a push for everyone in our district. So we have done professional learning for our cafeteria workers, our bus drivers, our custodians, our facilities, our technologists. Everyone in this district is going to be responsible for this initiative moving forward. Deborah Murdoch is my guest. She leads the Cherokee County Schools Initiative on Social and Emotional Learning. And as we just heard, two mental health counselors are being added to Cherokee schools in addition to all of the guidance counselors. Your your initiative, so this is the thing, the, the guidance counselor relationship, the mental health worker relationship, this is based on a sort of intensive one-on-one focus. How do you spread that or make that work inside of a school curriculum in a classroom? You you embed that curriculum, and it's, it's small pieces and large pieces. We have really done a great job, I think, in the last year of, one, finding out what kids need. And we've used some surveys very successfully to do that. Um, we've used a group called Panorama, who really looks at the social-emotional learning needs of our students. We started that pilot last year in middle schools. We're expanding that to 512 so that we know where kids stand in their resiliency, in their self-efficacy, what they feel about their grit. And so using that kind of information, really targeting some specific, specific learning goals to the child, almost making an individual plan for their learning needs. But it's going to take a collaborative. We know we're part of that. Our community has stepped forward in ways that we knew they would, um, and we're super excited about that. Um, partners like our hospital affiliate, Northside Hospital Cherokee, um, the facts the organization that really supports kids in crisis so we're very very excited about moving forward we know it's going to be a totality of approach one of the things that we became very very aware of in um, a georgia health survey last year was that a significant portion of our kids about 24 percent said they wanted and needed a significant adult at school that they could connect with Mm. that is one of our missions this year that each child in our district all 43,000 has a significant adult figure a relationship in their life and that's our goal for this year well, the need is glaring everywhere. And the recent shootings in Texas and Ohio mm-hmm. both involve shooters in their 20s. Again, most people who commit acts of violence do not have a diagnosed mental illness. Although there were some warnings of the sign of capacity for violence, certainly, especially for the Dayton shooter who had a kill list and a rape list, apparently, in his high school. So given your experience, do you think that counseling, some kind of intervention in high school may have changed that outcome? Well, it's impossible to say. Um, you know, there are no crystal balls here. But what we are hoping and believing that if you build supports for students, um, starting from their earliest school age and really beyond, um, that hopefully that we intervene in, in pieces that could promote someone to do that. And so um, that is our goal is to provide every support, provide every relationship that we can have so that students feel that they have a solid um 
relationship and a solid place to go in, in, in the event that they need mental health supports. Well, this certainly came up in Cherokee County's Atawa High School in 2016. Two students planned an attack on people at the school. What effect did that have on the system and the community? Well, it was... Um, if if you look at the best case scenario of that really terrible thing, our community stepped forward in a great way. And so um, we had people that reported that incident and every municipality, every our school police, which we have an extensive school police program, um, worked collaboratively with the sheriff's office and our district folks so that we made sure that um, that was addressed and handled in the best way possible. But it was a real eye opener for us that, um, you know, just because we're in Cherokee County, a great suburb of Atlanta, it can happen anywhere. And we have to be vigilant in our efforts, not only to support our kids' mental health pieces, but also to protect them with safety and security measures. Well, this is part of the thing. Students increasingly have to deal with the threat of violence in their schools. Ethan Asher is a senior at Centennial. High School in Roswell, founder of the Georgia chapter of March for Our Lives. So he said it was hard to get help from overworked counselors after the Parkland High School shooting. When we talk about mental health in schools, a lot of people talk about having a specific mental health professional. So I did depend on my teachers and my friends and my family to kind of be a support system in those days after the shooting. How can social and emotional learning help students through this kind of threat, the fear of going to school and gun violence, you know, even if the school counselor is booked. Right. Well, it, it goes back to that one significant adult. And so um, we've kind of hashtagged to be that one, be that the power of one. So it's really linking kids with a significant adult that they feel safe with. And so counselors are overbooked. The state funds a counselor one to 450 so it's very difficult to make sure the counselor has time for all for everyone. But there are significant adults in a building that can reach kids and make them feel safe and secure. Well, here's Ethan after the more recent shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. There was no information for so long. You know, we found out at probably 11.30 noonish what was happening, and it wasn't until 6 o'clock that we knew any information. We didn't know how many shooters there were. We didn't know how many victims there were. We didn't know where it was happening. We literally knew nothing. So it's the not knowing that really was um, anxiety causing in this scenario. Yeah, making students feel safe in this age Mm -hmm. of anxiety. What do you think an increased focus on mental and emotional health of students could help prevent violence in school or beyond or, or at least help care victims and others when it does happen. Yeah, both. And we're, we're really looking at uh, a dual approach. One, embedding curriculum that stresses importance of relationships that helps students understand their emotions and managing them, and also um, focuses on dealing with those anxieties. But we're also doing things within our district to make them feel more safe. Um, extra police presence, um, buzz-in systems, security foyers. So there's kind of a duality of approach there that we really hope um, gives kids confidence about being in school. School should be their safe place. And we know that's a problem right now. Really quickly, I'm sorry we have to close, but I'm wondering how you measure emotional intelligence or emotional learning? It's a great question. Um, We're really banking on um, and very confident in some of the results we've seen from these surveys about how kids view themselves, because it really is a self-assessment of a measure. It's very difficult for one to test social emotional learning, but the kids can tell us themselves. Executive Director of Social and Emotional Learning, Deborah Murdoch with Cherokee County Schools. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. She's leading the initiative. That is going on now in Cherokee County, maybe a model for others. Stay with us. We're going to hear about Depression-era women who broke the gender barrier with their work for the WPA. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. I'll See You in My Dreams by Jan Garber brings us back to the 1930s and a nation hobbled by the Great Depression. As part of his New Deal, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt began creating new government agencies to create jobs, including the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. WPA workers were mostly unskilled laborers sent to do construction work on roads or buildings, but some were skilled artists who came to define this period of American art. We do often hear about the male artists who benefited from the program, Mark Rothko and Jason po- Jackson Pollock. Now the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens sheds light on the female artists of the time. Annalise Mundy is Deputy Director of the Georgia Museum of Art and Curator of the Women of the WPA Exhibit. Joining us from Athens this morning, welcome. Thank you. The Depression-era work, you know, conjures certain images. We think of that famous Dorothea Lange photograph, the migrant mother with her children in a homeless encampment, for example. And while certain art history buffs may have heard of some of these artists in the collection, I'm thinking of Lucien Bloch, Dorothy Jenkins, a few of them are household names. Tell us about the ones that you have in the collection. Well, we have quite a variety here. Um, some of the artists that I found particularly interesting are Vanessa Helder. She worked on um, capturing the work of the Cooley Dam through her watercolors Mary Hutchinson, who has Atlanta connections, um, she had gone up to uh, New York for the arts teaching, the arts teaching division uh, for the WPA, and worked at the Harlem Community Arts Center, and then she moved back to Atlanta and uh, taught at St. Saint pa- Saint Pius High School, and taught at um, the High Museum. So, I wanted to draw Georgia connections too, mm-hmm. uh, such as women who've worked on post offices throughout Georgia, um, just to demonstrate some local interest. This exhibit is mostly print, some paintings, even a WPA-era painted sign. So how did you choose to set it up? Well, the first gallery, I wanted to just introduce uh, audiences to the WPA. Uh, We're fortunate to have this sign. Uh, It's on loan to us. It's just a sort of fun artifact advertising the WPA. But the first gallery, I just wanted to show the variety of techniques that were used by a lot of the women artists, uh, the type of subject matter that was used. Um, we have everything. It is predominantly prints, but we I did borrow a few paintings just to show that medium as well. But we have lithographs, woodcuts, aquatins, etchings. In the second gallery, I wanted to concentrate on different themes. The first half of the gallery is entertainment or leisure or interiors. And then the second half is about industry and work. Yeah, there are a lot of those. There's a lot of, you know, pouring uh, molten metal in forges and industrial-looking scenes. But you mentioned having to borrow some paintings, so you had to look in some far-reaching places, digging into private collections of lenders to find prints and paintings. But they haven't always been in private collections. It started as public works of art. So what has the path for these pieces been like? Well, that's an interesting question. Um we received the bulk of our works um, back in 1943 when the federal government went ahead and distributed the works that they had acquired. So the University of Georgia was one of the beneficiaries, one of five beneficiaries here in Georgia to receive this packet of prints. Um, we have a couple hundred of them, so we were really fortunate 
to to have these. They were for study. Uh, they were first at the main library here and then transferred to the museum in the 60s. How or where were they shown when they were first made back in the 1930s? They were shown in schools. They were shown um, in various art centers in a variety of ways, these prints. It was a little different than the public art, such as the murals that were created. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also t- as teaching aids. Um, so... A lot of this was to make people aware of the great art that was being produced right here in America, not, you know, overseas. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wanted um, people to be aware of all the good things that are here, right here Mm -hmm. in the United States. You do also, uh, at the the museum there, have a couple of exhibits dedicated to the big mural art that we think of or associate with that time. But what is it? Is there commercial value for this kind of art now? Well, I'd say that uh, a lot of people are very interested in this art now, and they're quite desirable. Um, they, you can find the works on paper uh, somewhat easily. Um, the painting's a little more difficult, but of course um, it is a little tricky because um, many of these actually still belong to the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a question. I mean, preservation hasn't always been a priority for WPA art. What did or maybe didn't you find as you were pulling pieces together for these exhibits? Well, again, I wanted to concentrate on our permanent collection just to highlight um, the riches that we have right here. Um, And there is a a lender that we've worked with quite a bit who's been very generous in lending things to us. Um, He has quite a collection, but it makes me think of murals also and things that are now maybe not so well received mm-hmm. um, murals that are being covered up. Right, um, right. Like we have the cases of even when I think the Rockefeller Center mural was painted showing the glory of work, um, there was a threat that that should be covered up at one point. So what was the, what's the sort of political messaging that I guess seemed like something that they didn't want to touch? Well, the public murals, um, that was more of a competition, and um, the government preferred for those to be a little more mainstream, whereas with the Federal Art Project, the artists were allowed to be a little more experimental, experimental in subject matter and in materials. But yes, the Rockefeller Center murals by Diego Rivera were covered up, Um and one of the artists in this collection, she was uh, one of the few who got to actually photograph those murals and document them. She was friends with um, Diego Rivera and his wife, Frida Kahlo. Yeah. So a famous artistic pair. But these women, not as famous. So was there a priority in preserving their work and in pushing it forward to, for you know, posterity or history? Well, I think so. Um, this is actually a result of an exhibition I had done, gosh, close to 17 years ago for Gainesville College, now University of North Georgia, which I had um, pulled prints by uh, women artists, but I didn't mention that they were women. I just wanted it to be quiet and people to just uh, notice that these, this entire exhibition was by women artists, but I, I decided to choose a different tack this time. Um, and what were they what were they assigned to do? What were they told, you know, by the WPA? Were they sitting in their studios and, you know, we will pay you to make art about the industry of the United States or sent out on the road like the Dorothea Lange with uh, photo, with camera in hand? Some were sent out. Um, some were allowed to do whatever 
came to them, but um, some were sent out. Um, like I mentioned, uh, Zama Vanessa Helder to go ahead and document the construction on the Cooley Dam. Uh, some were um, told to create work for the subways of New York. Um, so to um, to document a lot of the projects that were going on that were also a result of the New Deal and um, to celebrate a lot of what was going on in the United States, the good. And, you know, some of them went out to document Blanche Graham. She went on to Pennsylvania to document the conditions of the coal miners there and bring to light the uh, terrible conditions they were under. Annalise Mundy is with me. She's the deputy director of the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens and curated the Women of the WPA exhibit that's going on there until September the 8th. Um, well, you mentioned that you already have a permanent collection of works from the time. So how does this exhibit of works by women fit in with the rest of your collection? What does it add? Well, I think it's always good to... Um, highlight maybe not as uh, prominent, um, might I say. You think of works by African-American artists, works by women artists, just just so that people can see themselves when they come to the museum, mm. something of themselves, and that they can feel comfortable and see that they can accomplish these things as well. Is the, is um, the collection mostly, of the WPA works that you have, mostly male? Uh, yes, it is mostly male, um, but we we do have a fair amount of women, and uh, thanks to uh, the director, Dr. Island, he has made it um, one of his goals to purchase and to obtain more w- works by women, um, particularly from this period. And we did mention uh, Rothko and Jackson Pollock got their start or were supported, let's say, at the, in their early days uh, by the WPA. Did women also get a career boost from their work? Sure. Um, women such as, um, let's see, uh, Louise Nevelson, she got her start there. Um, a lot of the abstract expressionists, um, let's see, uh, Jackson Pollock's wife. Um, Lee Krasner. Thank you. Um, so, yes, there were a number of women that did get their start as well um, so from which, the WPA. Which artists from Georgia are featured in the exhibit? Well, I don't have a whole lot from Georgia, unfortunately. I have Mary Hutchinson, um, although that is a, a loaned piece, but um, I wanted to place that piece prominently. Uh, Dr. Jay Miller has done a lot of excellent work on Mary Hutchinson. Um, I just think she's she's a fascinating artist and had a big impact in Atlanta, I believe. Now, I understand um, that, that that piece, the the painting that she did, is one of your favorites in the collection. Can you describe it, it for us? It is. It's an image of a, a young couple with the uh, man sort of in this brooding look, stare um, straight ahead, the woman looking to him. Uh, it's a little harder to read her, impress- her uh, expression. Um there's these geometric shapes behind them. It looks like a locked door with bolts behind him. And it, I feel like there's a lot to read into it about the relationship, what's going on. He's closed off. Uh, I think the colors, the the shapes are, are really intriguing in this portrait. 
We mentioned some of the paintings depict industrial scenes, the Coulee Dam being built, uh, the life of coal miners. Now, this is before Rosie the Riveter, clearly. Right. So you might not have found many women present in a steel factory or a coal mine back then. But the way they showed these unfamiliar settings on paper to me is very powerful. Um, There's one, Minetta Good, has a particularly powerful print from a steel factory. Can you describe that for our listeners? I, I love her work. What she's able to capture uh, just with the ink and the paper, you can feel the molten metal, just the white-hot heat. She's using the paper to express this. Um, the men with their goggles, uh, they're small compared to these this vast machinery. Um, I, I really feel like she captured that. I can feel the heat just standing in front of these prints with um, the very stark contrast of the black and white. Um, she really captures the light. It's not unlike if you look at the kind of social realism art of of the 1930s in, you know, the newly formed Soviet Union, very much glorifying workers, these pictures of industry, of cities being built, of factories. How How are they distinct from that kind of celebration of the worker that you see in art at the time? Well, there definitely is yeah, a correlation with that celebration, the heroic aspect. But I think that um, um, our artists were also allowed to put in elements of the terrible conditions, too. Um, Blanche Graham, she was very much a political activist. Um, some of her works, it sort of abstracted these men going into the uh, tunnel uh, they're shrouded. It looks like a funerary procession. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that would have been allowed uh, in the Soviet art of that time. <laughs> well, the pieces you describe seem very different. You know, domestic scenes, others set in the drama of a steel factory, but both part of the same artistic movement. So what, what in your mind makes a WPA piece a WPA piece? Is there a defining artistic marker for this time? Well, there is a wide variety of styles, especially for the work that was uh, produced for the Federal Art Project. But overall, I'd say it was um, a very graphic quality, um, stark contrasts um, in the hues, a depiction of just everyday people, uh, not so much allegorical figures, but everyday people. Um, So those are some of the markers, I would say. Are these ultimately pieces of history or pieces of art? I think they're both, actually. That's a good question. I think they're both. Um, So many of these artists were interested in social issues. Um, That's another aspect that particularly interests me, and I think a lot of people of art from this time. Um, And then they were able to do it in a variety of ways and a variety of methods. So I think a little bit of art and history. So you've done this exhibit. You said you've done a smaller one in the past. So what does an exhibit like this mean for these works and these artists? Well, um, so I've I've done almost double. I've, I've included almost twice the amount that I had in the original exhibition. And in my research, I realized that in our files, some of these artists, their names were misspelled or some facts were incorrect. So just being able to unearth their story a little more, I would like to continue working on a number of these artists um, and just to to bring their story to light. Uh, I think that's important. 
Well, Annalise, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. I Annalise, enjoyed it. Annalise Mundy of the Georgia Museum of Art. She's the deputy director and curator of the museum's Women of the WPA exhibit running through September the 8th. Now, you can always join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB's Radios on Second Thought. We got a lot of responses to our interview with author Beverly Daniel Tatum, asked if you see subtle signs of racism in your communities, and some of you responded. Julia Ann said, oh, yes, other white middle class women complain to me about them moving into our schools or neighborhoods. I let them know I'm of another opinion and quickly distance myself. Others, Ellen Wright said, well, you just see it in the checkout line. Nobody won't get in behind a line for a black checker. They won't stand behind a black mom with a couple of kids. These little microaggressions. Leave us your comments on our Facebook page. We might read them on the air. You can reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, all 10 seasons of the FXX show Archer are now online. We're going to hear from Amber Nash, who plays Pam Poovey. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. All 10 seasons of the FXX series Archer are now on the network's website. That is after the season finale just over a week ago. Atlanta native Amber Nash has been there from the beginning. She voices the strong-willed Pam Poovey on the show. I really like you. Oh, my God, Pam. I think you might be my best friend. You're my best friend. What about Cheryl? You're my second best friend. Woo! I'm Pac-Man Jones! I sat down with her earlier this year to chat about her work on the show and her career in general and asked her if voice acting was ever on her list of dream jobs. No, no, I didn't actually, I never really considered it. Um, what did you want to be? I, well, when I was very small, my first job that I wanted to be was a bus driver because <laughs> I thought that was just like the best job ever. Everybody says hi to you. Right, <laughs> right. You're in charge of a big vehicle. It's great. Um, and then uh, I actually went to school. I went to uh, get my bachelor's degree in psychology. That's what the plan was. And then I found acting. I was like, wait a minute. My parents will hate that I want to do this. Let's go that route. <laughs> did you ever work in psychology in the field? I did, actually. When I graduated, I got actually a job in social work. I was working for the state of Georgia at a camp for um, teenagers with emotional and behavioral issues. Wow, that was a heavy job. It was. It was but I grew up really fast. I got that job when I was 25 and it was in incredible. And uh, then I was like, you know what? I am going to put this aside for a while and try acting. Really so acting was the next choice. But you yeah. did work in radio for a while. Well, I did. I did some radio spots here and there. That was kind of my first my first steps into doing voice work. Yeah, so I was kind of gigging as an improviser and an actor and so I'd get little radio spot gigs and do those and learn on the job. Do you, do you remember any of the spots that you did? You know, they were always like, uh, I, it, they were in Georgia that I recorded them, but they were always for different markets. So it was like Baltimore, um, you know, whatever, like a mattress firm or something in Baltimore. Um, I don't remember any specifics, no, but they were always like, we need comedians to do like a little sketch in this commercial. So, yeah. I've done those before, too. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just so weird. You know, you're, you're supposed to, you, you take on a character, yeah. but I guess good training for an actor. Totally, totally. Well, a lot of actors seem to migrate to Los Angeles or mm -hmm. New York City, but you stayed here in Atlanta. Did you ever think about leaving for a new opportunity? I did. It was actually, um, it was 
something that I was always in the back of my mind. I was like, if I want to do this, I need to go to LA or New York. The thing was, is I was always working here. So I was like, why would I leave when I'm getting jobs as an actor to go somewhere where there's so many more actors and I'm not going to get any jobs? Mm -hmm. And then that kept going. And then the market in Atlanta exploded. And now people are moving from LA to Atlanta for work. So it's... um, I'm glad I wrote it out. <laughs> well, and your rise, I guess, was at the same time or concurrent with the rise in roles and production here totally. in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, so what was that like to witness? It was really cool. It was actually very surprising. And there's a lot of people in the arts community in Atlanta that are like, hey, we're going to we're gonna stick to this. We're not going to leave. We're going to make the scene here. And uh, there's a really cool indie art scene that happens here, too, that's, that's really amazing. And I feel like we've got our own identity as artists, which is really cool. How is it different than you know the acting community here in Atlanta and in Georgia than other cities? I think one of the things that sets us apart is because we've always been our own smaller market that if you want to do something here, you can make it happen. And that now that there's even more crew that's here and people that are looking for fun side jobs, something that, that's interesting to them that they'd be willing to do for not a lot of money, then you can make stuff happen. And so I think that um, people are willing to do their own interesting projects as opposed to what they think is going to be commercially viable or is going to sell or is going to get a casting director to look at them. I think people are more in it for the art in Atlanta. Oh, so a different level of risk. I yeah, guess, totally. Level. And one of your earliest voice acting roles was for Adult Swim's Frisky Dingo. That's Let's right. hear just a clip. Why does it say welcome to you are doom? I, what does uh, that even mean? And I, why, for God's sakes, is doom in quotes? I don't know. Is, is this some sort of ironic doom? So please tell me how and why I'm suddenly a laughing stock. Uh, cause you signed off on the proofs? What was the setup like for Frisky Dingo? <laughs> you know what? This is so funny. Like, we were moving into season two of making that show, and I was starting to understand what the show was about, and I was like, I got to get out. I got to get out, because the show was so crazy that I don't really know what the show was about. I, I actually don't even know what it was about. <laughs> what What was Frisky Dingo? It was, I, I, honestly, I, I still don't know, and I did it. I did both seasons. Um it's a very weird, very, very Adult Swim. It's got that. And it was one of the early Adult Swim shows. And it's got that, like, if you're looking for an Adult Swim show, that is one of them. It's like crazy. Boys like it. <laughs> you know, um, there was a character called Killface. I still don't know what the show was about. I just know the characters that I played. What were you? What were your characters? I played a character named Val, who in the beginning, for some reason, was always like in a kimono. Um, she was an assistant of some kind. I really don't know. And then I played a lot of secondary characters. That was the fun part because they didn't have a lot of people and they just need somebody that would show up, do their lines. They, they could call them and I'd be there in 10 minutes and I could do some character voices. So I played several different characters. Um, but I'm terrible with accents. So in, I can't do accents, but I can do different characters. And so I think I probably played maybe four or five characters on the show. How did you develop these characters? Was this something that just came as your... Did you, were you were the, ki- the kid who imitated people or... You know, I was the kid that would um, screw around. I, I realized quickly, maybe like in like third or fourth grade, if I wanted to make friends, that the best way for me to do it was to get people to laugh. Because I wasn't like a sports kid. I wasn't, you know, there's like the cute kids and everybody just follows them around. I wasn't one of those. So I was just kind of weird and fringe. And I was like, if I play characters on on the playground, people will get into it. And that's how I made friends. I I had my very first character I ever played was on the playground. And it was um, 
I think it was, I called it escaped convict. And I would scream and run around and chase people. And people were like, this is awesome. <laughs> so when you decide to go into psychology, do your parents think, oh, that's a really good choice? <laughs> I think they were like, great, Amber, let's like make this something that's going to be um, uh, something that people can look kindly on as opposed to just being insane. But were you playing things out? I mean, I wonder about that. That sounds like a really developmentally advanced kid. Yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe I just had a lot of things inside of me. And I didn't know exactly what to do with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're listening to my earlier conversation with actor and Atlanta native Amber Nash. She plays Pam on FXX's Archer and performs at Dad's Garage in Atlanta. All 10 seasons of Archer are now online. Pam is this mousy HR director. This is back in the day. Mm-hmm. But she's evolved over the course of the seasons. What was your draw to her as a character? Oh, man. Well, the thing was, in the beginning, I was just drawn to the job, right? I was like, I get a job <laughs> in acting. Great. Um, and then the show... I, I don't think I realized that the show, none of us did, that the show was going to become what it is. And so I think, successful. Yeah, I think it was, because I, I hadn't even met any of the other actors until season two was like it, halfway through Oh, recording. right, as a voice actor, you never have to interact right. in Because we way. were in Atlanta and they were making the show here, but everybody else was in L.A. and New York. And then I was like, oh, this has got a lot of famous people on it. <laughs> you know, like Chris Parnell, I'd been watching him like my whole like growing up as a comedy person so I was like so stoked to meet him and then I think that once we realized that the show was successful and, and people were really starting to like Pam because uh, she was kind of just um, like she was a little bit of there's just the butt of the joke that was kind of why she was developed and then she started to progress into other things and have different um, sides of her and different skills and um, she kind of became like a real formidable character and people really started to appreciate her and she kind of became this weird sex symbol too over time and so I've watched her develop and grow and I was actually at um I was at San Diego Comic-Con, this was a few years ago, and everybody's lined up to ask questions, and lots of people are in cosplay. And I see that there's like a Pam, a few people back, and so I'm kind of waiting to hear from her. And she was the last person to get a question in before time was up, and she was in full Pam cosplay. And she started talking to the panel and saying that she was so excited that she finally had a character she could cosplay as that wasn't like fat Cinderella. Like she could be just regular Pam. Mm -hmm. And she got teary-eyed, and everybody on the panel's getting teary-eyed, and we're like, so proud of this cartoon character. It's just really amazing the life that it's had. For people who don't know Archer, can you give us the kind of setup of what the, what the whole Archer scheme is? Yeah, so it started out as this spy comedy meets office uh, comedy with a bunch of people that are um, terrible human beings. <laughs> and Archer, uh, his mom was also part of the company and his his ex-girlfriend was part of the company and there was lots of intermingling and office politics and Pam was originally the HR director and then through the seasons Pam kind of became like a field agent as one of the spies and then it all kind of exploded in season five when Archer went off the rails and did Archer Vice which was like set like a Miami Vice kind of situation in Miami and then uh, we went back in season six to the regular world and then since then we haven't been back and Archer is officially in a coma and each season that's happening is kind of like a coma dream um, there was a se- there was a season that was film noir there was a season that was like on a tropical island and now we're in space so there's something for everybody <laughs> <laughs> so what is that like to try on all these different iterations of the show? I mean, do you even have a clue when you show up that 
this is where we are now. We're on Fantasy Island or we're in Miami. Or yeah, whatever. we get a little, we usually get a phone call from Adam, the, the creator of the show, to kind of let us know, okay, so here's what I'm planning. The network has said yes, and so this is what we're going to do with it. So we always get a little bit of a hint. And the thing is that's cool is, like, the, the biggest one was in um, Archer Dreamland, which was the noir one, and I was playing a gender-neutral character that uh, very much dressed like a man, and they told me that the character was based on Russell Crowe's character from L.A. Confidential. So as an actor that's been playing a character for eight years, that's awesome, because you, you can't get bored. But the funny thing is, is I was like, well, do, is she, do you want the character to sound any different? And they're like, nope, just the same. So it's kind of more subconscious. It's just coming from, you know, what, just knowing this in the back of my mind. And maybe it did change the performance a little bit. But at the end of the day, I think it's just um, fun to imagine this new this new kind of lens over the character. And this season, Pam's a gigantic rock monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we get a preview of Pam's voice as rock monster? Or is it just the same? It's just the same. <laughs> <laughs> this is working. Yeah. Well, Archer's won a lot of critical acclaim and Critics' Choice Awards and been on for a decade. What is it about Archer that's built to last, do you think? I think that... We kind of struck a chord early on, and so we got a lot of people interested in the show that have stayed on as, like, hardcore fans. But I really think the longevity of it is because it's it's risky, like, because we're changing stuff every season. And in the beginning... Fans didn't like it. You know, you never you can't please everybody. And I think that if you if you have a comedy and you're not taking risks, then it's not a good comedy. And so you have to do that and you have to make some people not happy and then make other people delighted. And so I think the fact that we're taking risks and changing it up and keeping it fresh is what is keeping the show alive for as long as it's been alive. You've been a mainstay at Dad's Garage in Atlanta for a long time. What what, what kind of energy and interaction do you get from improv versus voice acting when you're sitting in a studio, much like we're sitting in right now? Yeah, it's so different. Um, and I think the biggest thing was in the beginning, because I was a stage actor and I didn't have a lot of training doing uh, microphone work or being in a studio, was that I would um, just like stand still with my arms by my side and like talking to the microphone. And I was actually doing um, some commercial work. And my friend Mike Schatz was like, you got to move around in there like we can hear that you're just a person standing completely still behind a microphone and so now um i have brought what i learned doing stage acting to the studio so like i move around i hit the microphone it's fine we'll re-record it i um pam eats a lot so i have to eat stuff in the studio and i'm sweaty and it feels like i've done a show when i leave the studio like i like doing improv um but improv is always stage acting is always my first love because it's immediate feedback. You have an audience of people that are laughing and, and telling you that you're doing a great job. And um, and it's just there that it's you and that audience that one night. It's never going to happen again. You know, it's really it's kind of magical. But improv of all things, that is the high wire act, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, now it's like because I've been doing it for so long, doing a scripted show to me is way more terrifying because, <laughs> oh, no, if I forget my line, then they're not going to be able to hit the sound cue. And then the whole thing's off the rails and then the other actors don't can't do their lines. So not having there's no mistakes in improv and so that's super freeing to me because i've been doing it so long and you were one of the well, you've been what with the ensemble for what 10 years or something um, let's like see that? oh almost 15, 15. almost 15 yeah. years and you were one of the first women that's in right the group. what did that feel like oh boy i mean it's so different now to look at the theater 
uh, composition versus back then. There had been one woman before me that was in the ensemble named Kendra, and uh, she left, and it was two years before another woman was put in the ensemble, which was me. So it was all boys. Like it was like having 12 older brothers, <laughs> and it still is sometimes. Um, but it, I. I would get notes from other women that would travel to our theater that were from theaters that had more women, and they would tell me that I improvised like a man. And I was like, well, I just had to improvise. What what does that even mean? Exactly. I was like, and maybe I played more male characters, or I had to do things that the men in the group responded to. And so I think I probably did have to elbow and be a little bit tougher Mm -hmm. to get in, to get my voice heard. But then when women started coming around and more women started staying at the theater, not just taking classes and leaving, um, the story started to change and the, 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 scenes would be different and we were telling different stories because we were telling stories with more diverse voices and now it's it's such a different theater and it's really awesome to watch everybody grow and 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 learn and be more diverse it's great you also did a 2015 web series with the folks from dad's Mm -hmm. garage it's called heart h-a-r-t of Mm -hmm. america it chronicled the weirdness of the country. It was set in a state, state park. So what was the inspiration for that? So my husband, who is the artistic director at Dad's Garage, Kevin Galise, he had an old partner. He's from Canada. And his old partner that he used to do improv with, Arlen, they... It, the way that they improvise um, is very specific, and they use that as a template, that format as a template for writing. So they wrote in their the style of their improv. So it's uh, they do three different stories that start to weave together towards the end. So that's what we had. We had three different stories that I played the main character of each of those stories, and then the narrator. So I play four completely different characters, my favorite being an old man. <laughs> and um, then all the stories kind of weave together in a 10-episode web series. It was incredibly fun. What's your old man voice? Um, it's, it's pretty similar. Everybody at Dad's knows it because I love playing old men at the theater. It's kind of like, well, looks like you're not from around here. He's kind of, he's always hiding behind a bush. <laughs> it's funny watching you because your your face changes yeah. when you do the different characters. <laughs> well, thank you so much. What a pleasure yeah. speaking with you. Thank you. Atlanta native and actor Amber Nash. You can frequently check her out in Atlanta at Dad's Garage. She's also Pam on the animated series Archer. All 10 seasons of the show are now streaming on fxnetworks.com. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.